This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Actually, you know, most of the podcasts that I don't like, I just don't listen to them. <laughs> just saying, like, well, no. Look, I know. Ignore them. Like, that's that's an option. That's a choice in the free marketplace, yes. So speaking of that, hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name's Will, and my, my friends and usual co-hosts, uh, Kat and John, are still on vacation for the month of July. And technically I'm on the month, I'm, I'm, I'm away too doing something, but we want to continue to play some interviews that we, you may have missed. And we're setting up with some new introductions to give you some additional color for those conversations. And so today along those lines, joining me today is my friend, uh, Professor Dr. Michael Brett. Hey everybody. How is, um, how is everybody else? I guess I could ask questions, but no one's going to answer me. This we'll, is a podcast. I'll send, I'll forward you the emails. Right. I clearly do this every day. Yes. And, and I've asked Mike to join us because in addition to his many impressive credits, he's a professor of uh, composition and technology, specializing, I could say, right? And appreciating or most, uh, what, uh, some, some word is escaping. I mainly do electroacoustic composition. So what I'm doing is like violins and strings and uh, whatever acoustic instrument there is and electronic instruments. Right. And I have a, uh, actually in my studio right now, so... I'm like looking at synthesizers and all sorts of stuff that's yeah. around me. But yeah, I, I love that stuff. I'm super passionate about electronic music. And this guy's legit. He's taught at uh, Ursinus College, Cleveland Institute of Music, Oberlin College. Come on. People know Oberlin. Yeah. Some. Uh, and many. Yeah. You know, some of them. Some people know. Some people might know. Music people. Uh, but I teach at the University of Mary Washington right now. Cool. It's Ursinus, by the way. Ursinus College. Um, Ursinus. Like everybody yeah. knows. Not to correct you. And by the way, it's Moog before we start going. <laughs> and Mike joins us today, of course, because we're going to be speak, playing our interview. Did I say this already? Probably. But our with legendary uh, composer, Harold Faltermeyer, of course, who specialized in, in uh, using electronic music in many of his scores and compositions, sometimes primarily, if not exclusively, including uh, Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, Top Gun, Fletch, Fletch Lives, The Running Man, Tango and Cash, and so on. And folks might not realize this. He actually wrote The Heat Is On, which is a song from uh, Beverly Hills as well. He, I actually forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know that because I remember that from the interview. But. Yeah, Glenn Fry did not do that. So, Mike, I wanted to ask you some questions to add some, you know, again, some additional. I didn't sure. I, I talked to some stuff uh, to Harold that uh, I didn't uh, necessarily follow up with him about, but I'm curious. At the time we talked to him, he had just finished scoring Top Gun Maverick. Which is crazy because we talked to him a couple of years ago and the movie just came out. Right. Well, they put that movie on the shelf for a year, right? Like it yeah. wasn't doing anything. And I imagine too, if that movie would have come out yeah. when it was supposed to come out, there's no way I don't think it would have been as popular mm. as it is now. Like it's sort of this like um, jingoistic, I mean, in the best possible way, yeah. feel good <laughs> movie. And I just don't think that in the beginning of COVID <laughs> that would have probably flew as, as, a, as it does now. Yeah. You're right. You're probably during the middle of COVID. People are hiding. Uh, and depending on who you are, you're either uh, for the government or fearful of the government making you get a shot. For you to, to have a rallying type of, yay, go U.S. strength uh, film, yeah, probably would have crashed and burned. And just like, what, what luck that that movie was like the movie of the summer. I mean, it looks like that movie is going to beat Thor. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone would have predicted that Top Gun yeah. would have overtaken like Doctor Strange and Thor in the in the theaters, but... Here we are. You, you remind me when they stalled it, I was like, oh, it must stink. I mean, come on. 
Right. And I was so mad because like, not only did they put off for 2020, then they, it was supposed to be like July 4th, 2021. No. Then it's July 20 or summer of 20. It was long enough too for Joseph Kaczynski to come out with like a whole nother movie. <laughs> Is that right? Like oh. the week after oh. <laughs> on uh, Netflix or whatever. So Harold yeah, had just crazy. finished it and it was two years ago. And one of the things I talked to him about was, so you did the top gun uh, thing, you know, uh, asked him about how he created that music and whether or not at this point he's using c- computers because as you know, of course, you know that he had, he used synths during the 1980s and, you know, modules and keyboards and MIDI controllers, but now you don't have to necessarily. And that's one of the questions I'll have for you, but he had pointed out in order to be able to do Top Gun, for example, he had tried to use a computer program to do that uh, DX uh, tubular bell sound that's iconic for the Top Gun theme. Mm, yeah. um, but he said he used a computer and it didn't sound right, so he dug out his old gear. Wow. Yeah. Gear that you use a lot and it sits away, like it wears over time, like anything else does, right? So they have character and sound to them that sometimes you can't get with other instruments. I'd imagine, though, that that would be less of the DX7 because a DX7 is like, it's a digital instrument. It's right. going to change less than uh, an analog instrument does. I mean, that's the whole reason analog instruments are so pricey. And so he dug that out to make the sound because the computer program couldn't emulate it or, you know, didn't have the warmth or whatever that he was looking for. But yeah, so it, he said he has a guy combined, you know, maintain it, but maybe that's just taking a can of air and like we, like we do from time <laughs> to time. Huh. It could be. I mean, making sure that those sliders are clean, like all of that stuff is good. Uh, we have um, an ERP-27 or a ERP-2600 at UMW, which is like, a, it's a $13,000 synth. Wow. Um, but we need to get it repaired and restored. And I don't feel comfortable enough. Like, I'm not, I'm dangerous enough on myself to, like, open it up and look at it and stuff. But when it comes time to actually, like, cleaning electronics, I want a professional in there doing that. Yeah. Hmm. For sure. I'm a I'm a creative person at the end of the day. And I... <laughs> I, I don't want to mess up my $13,000 synthesizer, oh, yeah. you know, Oof. I'd be sick about that. I guess even for a digital piece of equipment is the metal inside of it. I mean, it's encased in, you know, for the most part, but maybe the metal even over time oxidizes or something. Is that possible? I don't know. I, you know, I love Harold. I've yeah. never met Harold, but I love his music. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you that uh, sometimes composers, they reach the thing that's familiar and comfortable to them. Yeah. Because it's familiar and comfortable. Uh, along those lines, again, because I know you you have you have physical synths, you know, vintage synths, and you also dabble in, like you mentioned, there's recommending programs. Can we, are we at a point where we can, maybe, you know, again, maybe maybe part of it for Harold is nostalgia. Can we adequately, adequately reproduce the synths that were popularized in the 80s? Like the ones that, that he, he used? Oh, yeah. There are free digital versions of all those synths that you emailed me before. Um, yeah. If you want the Jupiter or the DX7, or any of that stuff. I mean, you can find free, um, like I was saying, VCV rack is great. Uh, Pure data is a free programming environment where you can sort of um, all, uh, there's a bunch of programming environments where you can essentially create synthesizers. Um, They all have their own kind of little sounds to them. And I think part of the thing that makes analog synthesizers so special is there's an unpredictability to how it sounds and a warmth to it that you can't get with other things. Like if you can think of Christmas lights, I don't know if I said this back when we were talking about this uh, synthesizers before, but yeah. incandescent Christmas lights have sort of a glow to them, right? That just it, you can't get mm. with those um, LED lights. Right. And the LED lights are brighter and they're cleaner and they're, you know, they burn less energy and stuff, but there's a certain warmth to them that you get with that. And, and with the analog sense and digital sense, it's very much the same thing. Wow. That's um, the filters all behave in a certain way. And like, 
um, I have an analog synth right like next to me. If I want to play it, um, I have to t- turn it on for 10 minutes and warm it up mm. before I can play it. Like it actually needs yeah. to, uh, to warm up before it can like hold a, hold a steady pitch. That's my car in the Cleveland winters. Right, know. right. It's everybody's car in Cleveland. So is this something that, do they, are they trying to put this in the, in the software now, some level of uh, chaos, you know, uh, yeah, there is um, there is analog drift in a lot of digital synthesizers. Like I have the um, the ASM Hydrosynth, which is a eight voice digital synth, and one of the things that they have on there is an analog feel button, and you turn that up, and it distorts the synthesizer in a way that makes it sound sort of like an analog warmth kind of thing. Um, but I will tell you, as even with those buttons and those settings and things, it still doesn't compare to the sort of the warmth that you get out of an analog synthesizer. I can tell night and day which one is which. Like it's just, it's cleaner, it's clearer, it's, um, it's a different beast altogether. But, you know, sometimes you want that digital coldness. Sometimes yeah. you want something that is harsh yeah. and hits and uh, for like dubstep and whatnot. Like I think digital synths work a little bit better. All right. Hey, Mike, I appreciate the uh, additional, uh, you know, layers uh, to this uh, conversation that we're about to play for folks. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think how I say goodbye to you. Uh, uh, you can actually just say goodbye. You don't have to be like, we need to send him okay. off. All Some right. sort of All Viking right. funeral that gets All me right. out of here. All right. Whatever. Hey, hey uh, get off here. <laughs> Mike, thank Goodbye. you so much for your time today, providing some yeah, additional I can tell. color. Thanks. Great. <laughs> And, uh, hey, Goodbye. oh, all right. All right. Well, Hey, maybe you don't, maybe you don't want to leave because in a moment we'll be right back with our conversation with Harold Faltermeyer. Our guest today combined his expertise as a classically trained composer with the latest technology at the time to create groundbreaking scores for several iconic 1980s films, including Beverly Hills Cop, Fletch, Top Gun, The Running Man, Fatal Beauty, and Tango and Cash. His unique and unforgettable compositions for two of those classics, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun, each earned him a Grammy Award. And while his name may be most associated with Axel Foley's chart-topping theme, his accomplishments extend far beyond the silver screen. Working alongside mentor Giorgio Moroder, our guest wrote the disco classic Hot Stuff for Donna Summer. And, along with Keith Forsey, our guest wrote the top 10 hit The Heat Is On. And additionally, he composed and produced music for various media, including chart-topping albums, musicals, and video games. If you're fluent in German, you may read our guest's new autobiography, Hello Hollywood, My Life Between Home and Rock and Roll, in our guest's native tongue. If you're like me, however, you're anxiously awaiting the English version, which is due out next year. Please welcome to the show the one and only Harold Faltermeyer. Harold, it is so good to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome, Will. So our show is uh, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek defense of 1980s pop culture, but quite honestly and sincerely, having grown up in that era, 
I do feel like there was something magical about the 1980s. There was this nexus of different things happening as far as greater globalization. So we were exposed to, you know, one cultures were exposed to one another. There was uh, advances in technology, of course, that really it seemed to lend itself to this, I say renaissance and, you know, and again, somewhat tongue in cheek way, but it was, it seemed like a boom of pop culture and art in a way that hadn't been, we had maybe hadn't had in prior or since decades. Uh, in any case, you've played a big role in, in, in that. And so I'm very grateful to speak you, to you today. So again, we grew up, I grew up in the 1980s and our listeners, you know, are fans of that decade. What is your era that you, you associate with as far as, you know, the time that you most associate with music and film and art? Um, looking back, I have to say it has been the 80s because um, one, once we were living in the 80s, um, time was flying so fast mm. and um, we, we didn't know that that we were in the 80s, you know, it was just <laughs> running from one project to the other, you know. But then when the, the 80s uh, faded and uh, we, 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 we um, went to the 90s and, and there on to the, to the millennium, um, when I look back, it was the 80s, which, which had these incredible, innovative uh, moments. And let's face it, I mean, this was the time where, where computers really hit in. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was one of the first owners of a Mac Plus, you know. Wow. <laughs> and this had, this had, the, this had it, was, it was like a, everybody was talking about this thing and nobody could get it. So we, we, we took every effort to get one. And it was really hard to, to find one then. And we, we got it over Japan. I, I don't know. But finally, I had, it in this, I had it in the studio and I unpacked it. I said, what the hell is this going to be? It's a little <laughs> box, you know, and what the hell is a mouse? <laughs> and so I was, I was working with, with it for, for an evening or so. And then I said, ah, this is, this is something really, really innovative. And this could change our world. I knew that from the very first beginning. And soon, soon thereafter, we, we had our first um, software to make music with. The biggest problem was we didn't have any capacity to store our music on. Right. We had, we had, uh, I remember on, 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 uh, the, the Mac plus was sitting on a, on a hard drive, which was called easy drive. And it had 40 megabyte. This was, <laughs> it was, and it was so big, you know, but you know, as you know, I mean, you can only store one song in good quality on a, on a device like that. Right. So it was rather frustrating. And we went back to, to, uh, the tape machines, of course, in the first place. And then the whole thing really took off. And, and, um, so, this was the this was the beginning of these possibilities of making music, making extremely precise music, with uh, little effort. Um, you you had uh, you had uh, quantizing uh, um, devices. You had the, the early drum machines like like Lin, sure, where where you could really emulate um, a really really cool beat without having a, a drummer in the in the studio, and this thing had its own sound. It, and it, it, it led to a, a, a daily big wow. Wow, we can do this, we can do this, we can do that. And we can synchronize that with other machines. And all of a sudden we had an, a little orchestra, rather limited at, at, at that time, but working. And um, needless to say, out of this um, setup, a lot of creativity was born because you had something which we didn't have before. Right. Before that, I know certainly that, uh, you know, I know you studied classical music, of course. Uh, and I know that, uh, 
you were um, a protege of Giorgio Moroder, who, um, you know, known as the father of disco. So it seems like you, you have quite an eclectic background as far as uh, musical experiences. I think you have a lot of uh, sort of contrast and interesting juxtapositions. Studied classical music, but failed out of high school, right? It wasn't essentially in America right. what we would think of as high school. Um, again, classical music and disco, so many of these things. What was it that, uh, I guess, was your great, greatest influence as far as musical music? Or was it just these combinations that brought you to the, the, the moment that when you're finally in front of one of these computers, it sort of comes together? It, it, that, that, uh, two ways uh, to, to approach it. One was the... the um, the very, very technocratic way Kraftwerk worked mm, sure. in a, you know, in a, in a very, in a very, um, harmonic, um, um, limited, uh, um, musical, uh, style. But I always, I always liked the, the chord changes and the, and the versatility of, of the big composers like, like, um, like Mahler, like, like Bruckner, like, like uh, Beethoven, Mozart and, uh, Wagner. So, I thought there must be a way to, to combine this, you know, and um, you just had to be able to play it. And one of the first, one of, but this was back in the, in the, in the 70s, and that's where it started. I, my, one of my first assignments with, with Moroda was the soundtrack to uh, Midnight Express. Right. And um, we used an early generation of synthesizers for that, but... Uh, on top of that, I remember I did lots of orchestra arrangements and we used strings, we, we used horns, but real horns, you know, and real strings right. in the studio. And I found out that this combination of these both worlds was something which attracted me. And I always kept on um, doing these kind of things uh, until to the point where, where uh, in, the, in the early 80s, um, Beverly Hills Cup came in, you know, and we were we were um, leaving all the the paddings and all that what you were mm. known from Tangerine Dream or Vangelis, right. you left all that behind. And uh, we knew that we had to create um, a very sparse and catchy sound for this movie. And um, this was pure electronic. And this this then again led back to 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 Kraftwerk and and to 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 to. Um, to Bob Mook's uh, early sequences and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but I knew I'm, I would miss out something if I would not uh, go back to, to a combination of classical music and, and, and uh, electronic music, which then I achieved again with uh, Top Gun, you know. Right. So this was, then I, then I found, then I found the, the, the way back to the combination of these two worlds. And I still, I'm still working on things like this because I think that's the most interesting thing to combine things from different centuries you know and this is this is like a renaissance you you put together and if you look back to the 80s now it it was this combination which which created these fantastic melodies which are still uh, in everybody's ear today and and for example, my kids, when they, when they grew up, they, they thought this is something new. And I said, no, guys, this is from the 80s, from the 70s. <laughs> we did that but decades, decades uh, before, you know. And it makes you feel good that the, that the 80s are on vogue and um, they are getting played a lot. And um, I'm so happy that I, that I was part of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you mentioned about uh, combining different uh, elements from, from 
from classical music. And one of the things I miss of the 70s, and I guess the early 80s and disco specifically, is that we had so many songs. Well, we had so many songs in the 70s, different genres, was it rock or what they'd call middle of the road or disco, that featured strings and horns. Right. I mean, across genres of music, it was, I wish we had that today. I agree. And when you're when you're composing a piece, you know you mentioned uh, Axel F, uh, you know, or the, the the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop. Do you approach it at that point as you would a more traditional score? This was this was a very difficult job because we we were working with with uh, close to zero examples of how we would do it, mm. and I was sitting in front of a of a white page. I didn't I didn't know what to do, and I was. Ex- Experimenting, but this is the great thing that when you start experimenting on something and you fail sometimes, <laughs> that's what makes you. That's what makes you um, uh, create something really new, you know. And you just have to dare. Just mm-hmm. it just it just go for it. And I know I was. I, I think I was close to get to get fired from from Beverly Hills Cop because <laughs> the first the first attempts of, of themes were not received uh, so well. Plus, there was the the, the, the the general problem that a comedy these days was done by by um, classical composers like Olsen or, or Hamlish or, or whomever, you know. And they used like a Hanna-Barbera style orchestra, you know. Right. Very, very well done. Very, very, very clever, instrumentated, very well played, very well composed. But in a way... Old fashioned. It was done so many, so many times, you know. Right. And the producers and the director of Beverly Hills Cup said, "We have to do something new. It has to be not this kind of music." So just sit down and try something. Right. So I was trying and trying and trying, and I think it was the fourth or fifth attempt of a theme, which I which I played to them, and and um, it was still like a ha. Huh, I don't know. What do you think? And you know how this is. You know, nobody dares to to commit, you know, because, um, you don't know, is, does this really work? Plus we had the problem that the studio got, got nervous, um, that we are not using an orchestra and we are not using the, the, the union type, uh, situation, which you had in, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the comedies before, even Eddie Murphy's, uh, um, uh, trading places before was done with classical music, you know? Right. So it was it was very awkward to and to to convince the studio, but we I had I had Brockheimer and Simpson, sure, and of course the the the, the marvelous um, Martin Brest, who had a a a very clear idea of what he wanted. And when I played him the first theme, which which then turned out to be the theme of XLF, he was the first one to to say um, that's it, that's exactly what we need. It has the it's modern. It's it's uh, it's it's R and B ish. It's uh, it's funky. It's uh, it's clever. It fits the character, and it's very versatile. You can you can change it in 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 every way. You know. So I had a friend, and I got the support from the the, the three of them, and so we were able to convince the studio. Yeah, it's it's when I think about that theme in particular, you know, it's. It's like, like you to your point, it's like jazz. I mean, the intervals are kind of like, you know, jazzy, but also this sort of, it, it feels a little bit like the character could be sneaking around on an adventure, you know, this sort of, you could feel like he's tiptoeing or he's in a, on a chase scene. It's just, uh, right. yeah, right. V- very exciting. And you know, what's interesting is uh, as a child, you know, I, was, I guess I was a teenager when the film came out, it didn't strike us as new. It struck us as just, yes, this is exactly 
right. just felt yeah. like that's, you know, looking back, it's, you realize how innovative it was. I, I don't think folks realize, you know, much in the style of, um, I guess, in, in Giorgio Moroder, that in addition to, you know, scoring a number of films in the 1980s, you also were responsible for writing some of the the songs specifically that were the ultimate hits for some of these films. Um, folks most no- associate you with the uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, is it, uh, I don't want to say frustrating, that sounds so negative, but this uh, idea that there's so much more music that you've contributed that maybe folks don't appreciate. The, the thing is that with with a, blockbuster and a, a, um, innovation like Beverly Hills Cup, um, you get, you, you, you made something, something happen and you made something new. You, you created something which was not there before. So everybody wanted to have that. So, um, I got, I got tons of offers of similar movies. One of them I did, which was Fletch, which was pretty, pretty funny. And, uh, Fletch was in between, um, uh, Beverly Hills Cup and Top Gun. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And it's, it's a, it's a similar texture. It's, it's of course different again, but it's, right. it's somehow similar, but, um, but then the office you're getting is, um, always a, a, a stereotype. You're getting another cop movie, another buddy cop movie, another, <laughs> then you can, the next, the next one I, I got then was, was Whoopi Goldberg's, uh, um, fatal beauty, you know? And then I said, this is it. I'm, I'm not doing any of this anymore. And the problem is I always wanted to do something where I could show my talent as, as a, as a classical uh, composer as well. Right. But nobody believed that I could do it. I was, you know, I was like typecast. Mm-hmm. And, um, this for me was actually the, the, the biggest frustration. And this was, was, was what made me leave the, um, the Hollywood in the, in the early nineties, mm-hmm. because I only got, it's the same movies all the time, you know? Right. And then of course it gets boring and you, you start to repeat yourself. And the last one I did was, was cuffs with, with Christian Slater. And then this, and then I, I was sitting there and, and I was listening to one of the themes and I said, what the hell am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm copying myself mm. and this can't be. So I have to refrain from that. You know, I want to, I want to move on to something, something else. I want to clear my mind. I want to do some really different, you know, and then, Thanks God, I had the offer of of uh, producing the, the the Pet Shop Boys with their um, so famous um, album Behavior, right. and this 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 led me out of the whole of the whole uh, cop movie uh, genre, and I was so I was so happy that I could do that, and I'm still happy that I have done it. Yeah, it's quite. I, mean, I guess my point was going to be. And to what you're saying is it, it is quite amazing. And I don't think f- folks appreciate how diverse, how, how talented the great number of contributions you made, including working with the Pet Shop Boys and a number of other popular a- artists. Um, I was thinking of The Heat Is On. That's what I was thinking of. You know, right. I only le- recently learned about uh, how Giorgio's, this idea that we did an episode a little while ago about uh, hit movie hit songs from, from, from eighties movies, learning how many of the hits that we think of is, you know, uh, for example, you know, Glenn Fry uh, or Kenny Loggins were written by you or written by Giorgio. Uh, and then they bring an artist on to perform it. Um, anyway, but my point was being, you know, I have a new appreciation for, for Harold Faltermeyer and for Giorgio and lear- learning about this. Um, what do you think about the resurgence of, of synth music today? It seems like, you know, it's, there's a, a, a revival of it, in, including using not only the computers that can fake it, but actually getting the modules, you know, and people right. uh, tweaking their own equipment that they find. That's, that's what you start, start doing. I mean, this is a, this is a very desolate and desperate uh, um, experiment, of course, um, because 
it would be it would be a lot better to to write brilliant songs, you know. But I'm getting, and I'm not the only one. I'm getting so many uh, requests, you know, for licensing um, pieces of scores, pieces of music, pieces of compositions, and I always wonder. Well, in, on one hand, I feel very honored that that I'm getting these kind of requests. On the other hand, I'm I'm sad because I think, why don't you write stuff by yourself? You know, right. and this is this is so this is so this is a sad story because take take today's uh, hit songs, they come and they go. They're not they're not they're not, and, and that, that I don't think they will come come back like the '80s songs are coming back and still getting new cover versions and getting played all the time. You know, and to me this is a this is a, a really sad story. And when I'm when I'm when I'm talking to youngsters. And they they asked me uh, f- um, for advice. You know, what would I? What would you do? What would I do? What should I do? And I said, Well, make music, make the music you like, but uh, try to get, on the other hand, get a secure job because you never know if you really survive with this kind of music these right. days. Right. Huh? Yeah. It's. A, I make an effort uh, to to you know to your point about your children earlier and my, and uh, in your your comment here that for my children to understand where something came from, you know, there's that concept that all art is derivative in one way or another, but, but there's so much we hear today that is, yeah, just they're trying to recapture or recreate something from oftentimes now in the 1980s that it is, it is disappointing that, uh, um, but that said, it's, it seems like, you know, we've got so many of these other eighties properties that, um, are coming back in, in films or, or, um, for example, I'm thinking of shows like, well, I know you, I, I saw online that you're friends with uh, Michael Mendel, um, who's yeah. uh, the German actor who's, you know, I love him in Dark, that runaway hit show. It's fantastic. But hearing the music, I can't help but think it's sort of an orchestral version or evolution of some of the things you were doing early on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they push it a little bit uh, in different directions. But um, is there an opportunity for you to come back? And to your point, you don't have to, you know, be so synth driven now, it seems like it could be, you know, relying on strings or voices and, uh, right. It could be everything. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going into retirement now. I mean, we finished Top Gun now, but, um, I have some, I have some offers which, which sound really interesting. And obviously there, there seems to be a, a light at the end of the tunnel that I'm getting appreciation for what I want to do in the future. And if the right project comes, I definitely will do it. Right. Very good. So, and okay. Hey, you know, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't ask and confirm, but you, you are scoring top the, or Top Gun sequel coming out here, Maverick. Right. That's yeah, fantastic. Together with, together with, uh, with uh, Hans Zimmer. We did it oh, together. That yeah. is super exciting. Very good. Yeah. We were, we're very disappointed on our show to, uh, you know, obviously the, the pandemic has, you know, shook so much of our world, including the entertainment industry that we're having to wait even longer to see it now. Uh, but we, we look forward to that uh, uh, anxiously. Um, do you use, do you still have any of your original gear that you use? The uh, Jupiter, the, uh, your Roland? Yeah, everything. Everything is, everything is hooked up and, and ready to run. I have, to, I have a, a studio here in, in outside Munich at our estate. And um, everything I ever owned is, is there right. and is up and running. And I have, I have a, a guy who does a really serious maintenance on that because some of them are really, let's say divas, you know, and they don't work, <laughs> <laughs> they work like you would expect it from today's um, gear. Yeah. But still I use it because it, because 
it's a total a, a, a different story than than you would use samples, you know, and, and new and new uh, plugins of that very instrument. Right. It just sounds different, especially now with when I'm talking about Top Gun. The, uh, one of the signature sounds from Top Gun uh, were the, the the tubular bells at the beginning, and we we did try to to use uh, modern synthesizers or plugins where you exact we have the exact same sound, right. but at the end, we, we went back to the original DX7s mm. and to the original sounds, and we tried to get one of the old um, of the old units to work, which was a <laughs> was not easy. <laughs> it was a real challenge, but we did, and we used it, and it, it still sounds amazing. And it, what a, what a signature! If you hear this first bell, you know it's Top Gun, mm. you know, and. Yeah, this is just one of the one of the the, uh, the thousands of sounds which are uh, just sounding a lot better than than a plugin. It, it, it's just some kind of magic in those boxes. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I guess it's because there's more of a physical aspect to it than just uh, you know zero ones and zeros on a computer somewhere. Right. Yeah. No. No. It was and it was it, it was it was pain to uh, to program this because mm. you had you had a a early um, uh, syntax um, and uh, and panel to to work on that and you right. had to go through what to through. Uh, Tons of menus to really get to the to the to the platform where you could change a sound, and you really had to work on these sounds. And today you just you, you recall um, fifty thousand sounds plus from one instrument, and um, you just scroll through. There's no pain, you know. You oh, just yeah. go for it. But the problem is with uh, with the, with uh, some money and with it's actually it's little money. You can all buy that and everybody can buy that and everybody has the same sounds and yeah. that, that creates somehow a, a digital uh, musical pollution in our world. Yeah. 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 I was, I was going to ask you about that. I'm wondering in one way it democratizes, I guess, you know, sort of music in this access, but it, it does. Uh, what's your perspective? Do you think it's harder to, to make it and to stand out as far as music goes as having all this access maybe made people less creative or um yeah it i'm i, I really sub subscribe to the, the to this fact that when you have to work on something and you really you really have pain to achieve things mm. you, you're getting a lot closer to your music than if you just are recalling everything and and uh, you, you don't have to work it's like a it is like a like a musical supermarket you know you just mm. go in oh but i take this and i take this and, and you end up with tons of tracks which you don't need while back back then we 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 were working on on every every single sound. Just for example, take take again um, um, the theme from Beverly Hillscope or the entire score from Beverly Hillscope. They are not more than twenty four tracks. Mm -hmm. First of all, because we didn't have more than twenty four, right. we had we had two machines synchronized, which gave us forty eight tracks at the at the, at the max. But we we only used we only used like 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 18, 20 tracks sometimes, you know, and we had, and we made great, great music. It was, it was, it was transparent. It was not overlaid with, uh, with some kind of bullshit or whatever, right. which the, the more layers you put on, it, it's, it's not getting, getting bigger. It gets, it gets uh, more, more faced and, and, uh, and, and uh, smaller actually, you know, right. and the, the, the power of us, of a single track is, the, is it what what makes was what makes the power and the and the and the force of a musical piece? 
do, do you think that having paid, let's say, paid your dues, so to speak, someone like yourself, or, you know, even I had a DX, had the rack mount, you know, back in the day and you had, yeah, you had to look right. at that little screen or uh, any keyboard in those days, you had to look at those little screens, like you're suggesting to get to what you wanted that, but someone who grew up or came up paying their dues through that technology carries over that experience that even if you use modern technology, you're still able to edit yourself in a way and have a work ethic that allows you to benefit from the, from the new technology, but not, uh, I guess, suffer in the way maybe new artists are. Right. Yeah. It, you know what it is? If you, if you take it um, in doses and if, if you are aware and very conscious that you're not overlaying things, then of course today's technology is a lot easier to work with and you get, you, you achieve more than you would have achieved back then. Right. And since the time is flying faster and faster by the decade, um, we, we are running out of time. But um, if, you are, if, you are, if you are obeying this, these rules of, of, not, of not doing too much and, and try to cluster everything yeah. um, and trying to be original, then I think mm-hmm. you have a way out of the misery. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is art, right? It's knowing when to step away. <laughs> That's it. It's done. Right. So I'm going to try to pronounce the name of your autobiography. You'll forgive me for, for my German here. Go ahead. Gruß Gott Hollywood, mein Leben zwischen Heimat und Rock and Roll. It's very, it, it's very, it's very German, you know. It, actually, it's very Bavarian, you know. The, the Gruß Gott is is a, is a, is a greeting you say in, in Bavaria, you know, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, um, you're, you're, you're greeting God actually, right? Mm. But this is, this is in, in Bavaria, you, you abbreviate it sometimes as well to, to Christi. Yeah? Mm. And, uh, Gott Hollywood is of course, hello Hollywood. You could, you could say hello Hollywood, you know, and my life between, uh, between, uh, um, Homeland and, and, uh, and, and rock and roll, you know, is, um, is of course, actually my life. I've, I've been always going back and forth. And um, I, I enjoyed Hollywood a lot, but I was, I was very, very happy to get out of it uh, at one time as well. And when I, when I came back, you know, I'm living outside of Munich, I said that already, I think, in a very, in a very um, uh, um, unique uh, uh, setup. It's an old family estate, you know, and then the family lives there. My, my brother lives there. My mother is still alive. She just turned 94. Wow. And uh, we are all living, the kids live there and the studio is there. So there's a vivid life in this, in this little um, estate. And uh, it's so it's so great to come back here and to to sit down or or to hug a tree. We have all all the oak trees and all that. You know, you just sit there and enjoy the nature. And and um, once I've once I've been back here for like ten or fourteen days, I was ready to go back. You know, but I I needed this part of of uh, of, uh, of of my life. You know, it was so important. You know, and then I could I, I had the power to do anything else. You know. Right. Well, and again, you know, like I said at the beginning, such a wonderful balance between old and new and, you know, rustic and, uh, you know, technological that, uh, it's, you know, like, like you said at the beginning, it's sort of a, something you set out to, to live and achieved. And, you know, and this is, uh, seen in much of your music, uh, and certainly the music you want to create. Um, and I will thank you so much for your time today, Harold. Certainly greatly appreciate it. Good talking to you. 